Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. I am Timothy George, the Dean of the Divinity School and usually the host, but today a special host for a special series on faith, work, and economics, Dr. Mark Devine. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Uh, today we're going to fulfill another installment of the Faith, Work, and Economics series here at Beeson Divinity School. Our guest is Dr. Scott Ray. He's Professor of Ethics and Dean of the Faculty at the Talbot School of Theology at Biola University in Southern California. Dr. Ray is the author of 10 books. Uh, he's given a lot of attention to bioethics but also over the last 10 years, he has written uh, much about the area of faith, work, and economics. I mentioned two uh, titles of Dr. Ray's. One, Business for the Common Good, a Christian vision of the marketplace that he co-authored with Kenman Wong. And then The Virtues of Capitalism, a Moral Case for Free Markets. And I commend both of these fine volumes to you. Dr. Ray, most evangelicals already recognize, I think, uh, that work is uh, a place where, uh, as followers of Christ, we have a, a happy duty and an opportunity to bear witness for Him, and we recognize that we need to work in order to support ourselves uh, financially. But the way, as you read the Bible, the significance of work uh, goes well beyond these these two dimensions. Isn't that right? And uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, Mark, thank you. It's my, my pleasure to be on the podcast with you, and I've had a very enjoyable time here at Beeson these last couple of days. Uh, but I do think the, the Bible teaches more than just the instrumental value of work. I think the Bible also teaches that our work has intrinsic value and is a, a very real form of our service to Christ. It uh, seems to me that's the, the upshot of the big story of the Bible, that God, God ordained work in Genesis 2, not 3, before the entrance of sin, which means that in paradise, uh, God gave Adam and Eve the obligation to work, which suggests that it has intrinsic value since it was a part of pre-fall paradise, and similarly will be, will be a part of the, uh, when the kingdom comes in its consummation, uh, as the prophets describe, that they will beat their swords into plowshares. They'll, uh, the influence of war will be transformed into the implements of productive work. So work plays a role at both the, the bookends in paradise of biblical history. Uh, and the Bible affirms that that our the, the very work itself matters, too. I think this is the point of Paul's teaching in Colossians 3, where he sees giving this advice to slaves, actually, and says, in whatever you do, which that's a pretty big tent to have, you know, to cover, covers most of life, certainly covers the work that is done. Uh, in whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord. For, parentheses, in whatever you do, it's the Lord Christ whom you are serving. I think we, I think we ought to see our work as part of our ministry, part of our service to Christ and something that has intrinsic value. That is very interesting, and I do think it, it is, it is uh, insightful even to people who have been reading the Bible for many years 
that they've never reflected on uh, the the place of work uh, in paradise b- before the fall. But the fall did happen, and uh, you know that that has has that twisted and distorted so many parts of our our lives, the sexual relationship between people, and uh, and many other things, and so. You know, is work uh, not marred uh, so so deeply that um, you know we really find it to be a, a place of heartache and struggle rather than a than a, than a place where where we can reflect God. I think it's important. I think to distinguish in Genesis three between God cursing the ground and God cursing work. Th- those are not the same thing, uh, and the, the curse on work on the ground certainly affected. Work and so it introduced all sorts of things into the workplace, uh, such as alienation from jobs and sexual harassment and ethical dilemmas and you know all sorts of things uh, and di- difficult people to work with. You know of which you know you and I might be some of those difficult people from time to time. Um, but yes, it it changed a lot about the workplace. But I don't think it it obscures the nobility of everyday work and the opportunity to represent the, the – I think that's what it means that we are in the image of God. We represent God in the workplace. And I think that mandate is still there. I think in the original text there's a purpose clause connecting the creation and the image of God with human beings having dominion. And, and the primary means by which dominion was carried out was through the, the ordination of work. So there's a connection between being made in the image of God and the mandate to work, which, as Chuck Colson suggests, <clears throat> we're we're hardwired for work. And I think that's I think that's right. Um, so there's something intrinsically good about our work. It's related to who we are. It's also related to who God is, because God is seen fundamentally, not totally, but fundamentally as a worker. Um, and so we work ultimately because that's a part of what it means, part of who God is and what it means to be made in his image. Well, you know, it makes great sense, but it, don't we also find in Scripture um, a kind of distinction between, you know, the church and the world? We're called out of the world, be separate, uh, we're told. Uh, and so, I don't know, I think about my own spiritual formation and as I reflect back on it, it seems like our, the way we were taught to relate to the world is mainly in terms of a rescue operation uh, for people uh, out of the world and, and in preparation through the work of the church for, for, the, for the coming world. And so wh- why, why should this world, this fallen world that was meant to be good but is now fallen, why should it matter to us now? who are saved and and our citizenship is not in this world. Well, because God's redeeming this world. And the the world is part of what God will, is in the process of redeeming today and what will come to completion in the the Lord's return. I think the the premise that I think you've, what you've described is, I think is actually a very common view. But I think it also reflects a, a, a heresy known as Gnosticism which was condemned in the first century as it's, it's only the, quote, spiritual stuff that matters. It's only the soul and the immaterial that matters. Well, if that's true, we have a very big problem with things like the incarnation, where Jesus actually took on a physical body. And I think to say that our soul is the only thing that's going to last for eternity is theologically not true. 
because we'll have we will have resurrection bodies in in the scripture as I read it there's just as much hope for your body as there is for your soul so that's why I have a thing, you know, when asked, you know, what's our salvation for? It's more than just fire insurance for the individual believer. Our salvation is for, ultimately, the life of the world. As Paul affirms in Romans 8, you know, all of creation is groaning for its redemption and looking forward to that. Not just, not just individuals. Uh, and so the world, God deeply cares about the world as it is. In fact, I think you can say that, that Jesus died you know, God so loved the world, uh, not just individuals in it. Jesus died for the world. God's redeeming the world. Uh, and if the goal is to, br- it's to bring shalom and human flourishing, uh, certainly that includes some really important aspects of this world. And when the Bible calls us to be separate from the world, uh, it's referring to not adopting the world's values, not being isolated and out of touch with the world. Uh, in fact, Paul on numerous occasions exhorted the Christians to go back into culture and into the world and engage it uh, as opposed to being separate. They wanted to be separate, but he urged them to go back. He separates us out and then separates us back, doesn't That's he? That's correct. I've worked a lot in my own own life, and um, you know, I guess since I was in my late teens, I've been doing church work, I've pastored, I've, I've served as a missionary, I'm, I served as a, as a professor. I love my work. It's not hard for me really to appreciate the work I do. But boy, that's not the case for many people in this world. And uh, obviously in many parts of, of the, the undeveloped world, but even here, oftentimes as a pastor, I very much hear uh, from those that I minister to, they say, I hate my work. I hate my job. I see nothing meaningful there. Uh, does this theology of work have anything to say to them? Yes, it does. And it's a really good question to raise because, I mean, a lot of people, they sort of intuitively push back against this notion that work has nobility because theirs doesn't. Or at least they don't see it as having nobility. And of course, how we, how we perceive it and what it actually is are two different things, especially how we perceive it and how it is in the eyes of God are two very different things. But I think I would suggest that there, there might be a number of reasons why people hate their work. I mean, one might be that their work is just a bad fit for who they are. It may be that it's just not using their gifts and skills you know, in, in ways that cause them to flourish. That's entirely possible. It may be that uh, they have days where they hate their work, but that's not the norm. It may be that, in general, that it's a good fit, but even in, even, I mean, I suspect even days as a pastor and professor for you, or you have days when you want to throw in the towel and would love to do something else. I'm afraid that's so. From what I gather from you, those are fairly few and far between. Right. But, but I think every pastor has days where they want to throw in the towel. And I know in my job as a professor, I've got, you know, there are lots of things that I wish I didn't have to do. Uh, But on balance, I think I'm in much the same place as you are. But I think for some, we have to say, look, you know, maybe the things that God has really gifted and called you to do are not going to be the things that you can make a living at. And I think think that that was... probably predominantly the case in the ancient world. I think the, you know, the ancient world, 
Most people, they didn't have choices about their jobs. They just did, they inherited their job. Uh, and they inherited their socioeconomic standing and really didn't have a way to improve that either. Uh, so I guess, I mean, everybody sort of had job security if you look at, it, you know, not having any choice mm -hmm. in the matter. Um, but it, it may be that, you know, the things that you are most passionate about, I mean, all my, all my kids are artists. And, you know, th thankfully so far, looks like they're all going to be able to make a living at it. But it was, that was not, that's not a sure thing for people who are in some of those fields. Uh, and so I'd say to them, I would say, you know, yeah, your work still has value, but it may be part of your calling and not the heart of it. I distinguish between those. One of the more intriguing uh, comments that I heard you make uh, over the last couple of days, you argue that God uses the workplace as a tool for spiritual formation. How does that work? I think it may actually be the primary arena in which we are spiritually shaped, simply by virtue of you know, the number of hours that we spend in the workplace vis-a-vis -vis the number of hours we spend in the church building. Um, you know, and, I, and I think part of the reason that it's, a, it's such a good question is that I think most, most of the people we serve in the local church who are in the workplace, we, kinda, we leave them to their own devices to figure out how God is shaping them. But just think, think about this, for example. Think about the virtues that are re both required and nurtured by involvement in the workplace. Okay? There's a virtue of service. I mean, imagine, you know, imagine how, how difficult it would be for a company to flourish if they weren't committed to serving their customers. Uh, managers are, ought to be committed to serving those who report to them. Leadership is fundamentally about serving the people who report to you. Um, think about the, the virtue of perseverance and persistence. Imagine the salesperson who lacked the virtue of persistence. They're, they'd be in deep trouble trying to make a living. And then think about just in general the, the fruit of the Spirit. You know, the love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, patience, gentleness, self-control. Think about the opposite of that, too, with the deeds of the flesh. Who would you rather, if you're interviewing two people, one's characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, the other one's characterized by the deeds of the flesh, who are you more likely to hire? Who's likely to have greater job tenure in a place and likely to be more successful in their workplace? I mean, all of those traits are both required by and nurtured by participation in the system. Now, I think God uses the particular things that we come across as opportunities to shape us spiritually. Take the person who's laid off. Uh, what, what's, what's God doing in their lives to shape them? I'd like to, that's a conversation I'd like to have and to think about that a little further. And I'd like for the, I'd like in, in our role as pastors to think about how we can help people have their antenna up to notice the things that I think most of which go over their head. Mm -hmm. uh, and so say, say you've got, you've got a, a person in a management position who is facing the, the prospect of having to lay people off. You know, what God's, what's God teaching that person? How's God shaping them through some of those difficult decisions? Mm -hmm. Or what's God doing in people's lives when they face ethical dilemmas? in the workplace. Mm -hmm. You know, it'd be very interesting to know, can it, what, you know, what's happening to my character 
through having to face some of these things. I think as the pastoral role, I mean, this series, not, not so much to give answers, but more to ask questions and to listen and to help the folks we serve process what they think God is doing to, with their character. And we, we might have to admit at times we're agnostic about it. We don't know. It may be on reflection a few months later that all this stuff becomes clear. But God, you know, God uses trials, tribulation, failure in the workplace to shape us in the same way he uses that outside the workplace. Mm-hmm. You know? well, I'm glad you brought up um, the role of, of uh, the church and of pastors because um, I'm wondering... Uh, you you're convinced that God God's interest uh, that's revealed in His purposes for us in this world extend outside the walls of the church. It extends into the workplace. How are we doing in the church at acknowledging that and affirming affirming that? Are we getting it wrong? Are we are we helping people? to view their lives as more separate and compartmentalized than God does, and wh- what can we do about it? Well, I'm, Mark, I'm encouraged about the progress that's being made at the seminary level with the next generation of pastors. Uh, and I'm encouraged about the, the millennial generation and the importance they place on life outside the church building. I think they're, they're, there's more of a sense that the front lines of what God's doing in the world is not what takes place in the building, but once people leave the building. I think that's, that's crucial. Our ecclesiology, mm-hmm. I think, mandates that. But I think I, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Um, I, I, I will say that this idea that somehow pastors and missionaries are, are objectively doing something better for God's kingdom than people who are in the workplace, is a, it, that's a garden that continually needs weeding. I think that reflects a sacred secular split where on you know the sacred side are things that are really important to God and the secular side are things that are you know not so much. I think that probably is still fairly widespread. And it seems to me the reformers gave their lives to wipe out that distinction and that all, all of life is spiritual in that sense. And so if we mean by a secular a place where God is not then I don't know of any place in the world that's like that. That is that. And that's why I get I get a charge out of people who say, "Well, you know, help me understand how I can take God to work." I say, "I got news for you. He's already there, and thankfully, happens to be well ahead of you." Uh, so I think that if it, if it reflects that deeper sacred secular dichotomy, that's one that I think is theologically really problematic. Mm-hmm. You also, uh, I recall you mentioning uh, other matters of language that we could change, that would we could do, be more faithful to the scriptural uh, vision, and also maybe some ongoing practices that we might have with respect to business people, uh, working working people in our churches. What are some of those that will help us get it more right? I, I, yeah, that's a really good question because I think I think the way we talk about the the pastorate in the workplace really undercuts our theology. Uh, so I would eliminate the term full-time ministry from our vocabulary to describe the pastorate. In fact, I think I would probably I would prefer the term service instead of ministry. That's a, that's the more common translation of the Greek term diakonia, 
which I think is clearer. It seems to me, you know, every believer is in full-time service, and they enter it at the time they come to faith, not at, at any point where they decide to get a paycheck or not. And I would not use the term ministry without a qualifier so that, that designates the arena of service. Because the, the, think about how the workplace person hears that when they walk into our churches. If they hear that pastors and missionaries are in full-time service or full-time ministry, or if they're in, just, they're in ministry, then the business person, I think, hears that as that they're in part-time or no-time service, which I don't think is true theologically. Mm-hmm. And I would stop talking about secular jobs and higher callings, uh, you know, think, things like that that betray, I think, our theology. Mm-hmm. Now, it may be that, you know, that being a pastor and a professor is better for you because of your particular makeup and gifts and skills and passions. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you, we can move from that subjective statement to one that's objectively true mm-hmm. for everyone. I think what's dangerous about that objective statement is the common assumption that, uh, People who get a paycheck from a church or other Christian organization are somehow more spiritually together or spiritually committed, mm-hmm. and I, I think that is, you know, I think that's fair sake legalism. Yes. Well, that that's very interesting. Um, uh, I spent some time writing about the emerging church movement, which I had, you know, lots of critiques of, but one uh, area where I found them uh, convincing that seems to fit with what you're saying is a an interest in affirming the lordship of Christ everywhere. And I think what you're, the vision you're casting here really fits with that. I want to turn now and ask you a couple of questions that are more in the area of economics. Uh, you've written a book on the virtues of capitalism, a moral case for free markets. And um, are you saying that capitalism is some, it's a wonderful system that God invented? You know, it's kind of come down to us on gold plates in upper state New York or somewhere and that, uh, you know, there's just nothing to be questioned about capitalism or? No, capitalism is a human creation. And as such, uh, has all the flaws and foibles of any other human creation. Yeah. I am not, I think in, in general, I do think that participation in the global marketplace is the best hope for poor communities around the world because the record of the market system in lifting people out of poverty is unparalleled. Uh, And I think for the most part, the vast majority of people who are left stuck in intractable poverty is confined to sub-Sahara Africa for the most part. That's not, that means overgeneralized, but, um, and there I think there are, there are other systemic issues that have to be resolved before the before there's fertile ground for the introduction of markets. Otherwise, you get what you have there, which is largely what I would call crony capitalism in a very corrupt and perverted way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, and I am not, I am not what, what has come to be known as a market fundamentalist either that believes the markets is sort of, if you just leave it alone, it's, it's self-correcting. I mean, if anything, the financial calamity of 2008 and nine should have shown us is that markets are not self-correcting and that you know government is necessary public policy is necessary but more importantly I think is virtuous people are necessary for markets to work uh, markets presume 
a modicum of virtue and trust among the participants, or else you just don't have fertile ground. Now, there are other, there are other systemic things, too, that have to be in place. But uh, I think, that, for example, this is why I think that the, the introduction of the market when the Berlin Wall fell was such a disaster because it was, the ground was not, the systems were not in place for, to introduce market systems there. Well, let's, let's say that you're correct that, uh, and I think there's a great consensus about this, but let's just say you're correct that there's never been anything in the history of the way human beings have organized their lives together that can compare with uh, capitalism and free markets as far as lifting people out of poverty. Uh, but doesn't capitalism and free markets nurture ground for greed? You, you know, we, we think of the famous uh, uh, movie Wall Street, yeah. greed is good. Uh, and so however, however um, welcome the benefits of capitalism and free markets might be, if, it, if it's like a, you know, a, a perfect garden for one of the seven deadly sins, yeah. like greed, how do you respond to that kind of that's challenge? A good, that's a good question. And I'd say greed's a human problem, not an economic one. Greed flourishes or has the potential to flourish regardless of the economic system that you're in. In fact, I think there was as much greed in communist systems. It was just concentrated among the very few who held political power at the top. Um, and I think I'd be, I'd be careful about the assumption that you know, equality is necessarily a desirable thing. Because for most of the history of civilization, people have been virtually equal, they've, but they've been equally poor and equally miserable. So you disagree with the, the, another one of these uh, very often heard charges? You disagree that free, in free market and capitalist systems, uh, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer? Uh, if, yeah, yes, I do disagree with that. Um, though presently the, the inequality does seem to be rising. What, that's, what the statement you just repeated generally means is that the rich getting rich causes the poor to become poorer. And that reflect, that's a misunderstanding of economics. That, that reflects an economic system that economists call a zero-sum arrangement where, there's a where the size of the pie is fixed, and if I get a bigger piece, you get a smaller one. In a market economy, that's not true. Because every time a profit is made, wealth is created and the size of the pie gets bigger. Now, how it's divided up is a separate issue from wealth being created. But I don't think there's any debate over, at least historically, the ability of the market system to produce wealth and to lift people out of poverty. I would suggest that the, the inequality part the part that is really worth getting exercised about, are there's two parts to that. One is inequality that's the result of injustice. That's a huge problem, and I admit, that's a big deal, and God cares deeply about that. But I think also if, if inequality results in people feeling like they have lost hope in their ability to better their situation, that's a problem too. Um, but, but I think that's... It's probably, probably a little overstated to say, but I think inequality by itself is, is not the problem. Well, Dr. Ray, I want to ask you one further question uh, about uh, capitalism and free markets. 
Doesn't this system really prove to be a disaster for the environment? Um, don't we get, um, along with these uh, positive uh, benefits, which are extraordinary from free markets and capitalism, don't we also get increased pollution, uh, exploitation of the environment, degradation of the environment, uh, exhaustion of scarce and limited resources? So how can we, if we care about the environment, don't we have to uh, oppose uh, free markets and capitalism? I say not necessarily. Uh, though it is true that, you know, unbridled pursuit of self-interest can have very real conflicts with the environment. But I think in, in lots of the developing world in particular, we're seeing some really interesting market solutions to environmental problems. For example, take uh, species that are endangered in parts of the world. Uh, it's actually the the law has actually been fairly ineffective at, by itself at stopping poaching of endangered species. What's been actually very successful is for communities to have an, an ownership interest in the endangered species and allowed to to profit off of it, so that there's incentive now to actually keep herds of endangered species well populated. So this, has been, this was true of elephants, for example, in parts of sub-Saharan Africa. When the community was allowed to participate in the ivory trade, there was now an incentive to keep the herds well populated. And I think some of that holds true as well. I think in, in terms of the environment, it's crucial to recognize that incentives matter to people. And people will act if given the proper, they will act appropriately if given the proper incentives to do that. So. For example, uh, in, in my area in Southern California, we're in the midst of a horrible drought. And we've had draconian calls to reduce water consumption, some of which have been successful, others have not. But if the price of water were allowed to float and market incentives were allowed to enter into the picture, we wouldn't have a drought problem because it would be profitable to do desalination of, of salt water. And it would be profitable for other states that have an abundance of water to actually ship water to California. But with the, the price of water being artificially low and controlled means that there's no financial incentive to provide for additional supply. And the only way to increase, the, uh, to in increase our, our water stewardship under the present system is just to have government beat us down into submission to these, you know, I think artificially constructed standards. Mm -hmm. So if I think if market incentives were allowed to work, yes, the price of my water would go up. That's true. But I would be more apt to let my lawn go brown if I was paying, you know, three or four times for water what I, what I, what I am today. And I would take three-minute showers if I were paying a, an exorbitant water bill. Um, and, I, and so there, there's, uh, there's something too, I think, you know, op, uh, people operate according to what they're incentivized to do. Well, it's great to have you today, uh, Dr. Ray. Thanks for joining us on the Beeson podcast. My pleasure, Mark. It's great to be with you and hope, uh, hope our reflections here stimulate some more thought and are encouraging to people. Well, you're welcome. We're glad to have you. And this concludes this installment of the Beeson Podcast in the Faith, Work, and Economics series.
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.